It's historic, number one, because Abraham Lincoln was born 200 years ago today. Hey, what? What do you think I am, an idiot? Of course I'm going to the amen retreat. Gosh, who's that jerk back there? You think any of us are idiots? Of course we're all going to the amen retreat. Yeah, sure. Well, I tell you, last time I went to amen retreat, I got this terrible athletic injury playing golf. So I'm going to watch out this time and be a little bit more careful. Anyway, it is a historic day in spite of the interruptions I get from some of the knaves in the crowd. Um, Lincoln was born 200 years ago, and on this day, in 2009, we covered 24 chapters of one book of the Bible. That's, uh, that makes for a historic day. I don't think you'll ever see this again in Amen. Uh, this could be it. Yeah, it's awesome, all right. So uh, turn to Job 4, and of course, I know you all, you did exactly what I said last time, and you read carefully Job 4 through 27. And it, it really is a magnificent piece of literature. It's a magnificent revelation of how men struggle to get answers in life when all hell's breaking loose. And uh, we're, we we're scratching around trying to come up with the best household wisdom we can find. <clears throat> Old wives' tales, what we read in Bible and heard in Sunday school, just to mix it all together. Surely we've got to find some answers in there somewhere. But look at the, look at the general outline at the very beginning You've got a detailed outline that has some mistakes in it. I'll try to correct some of them as we go through. But look on page one of your handout right at the top, and you'll see this point-counterpoint back and forth between Job and his friends. And we saw last week in chapter 3 that Job lays out his lament. And we saw what it's like to suffer and what some of those interior thoughts are that come to our minds. And then his three friends begin to engage him. And there are three cycles of back and forth. His friend Eliphaz, his friend Bildad, and his friend Zophar each take Job on in that order. And there are three cycles to their, argu- to their arguments. And you'll notice that uh, they kind of make their points in that first cycle, and then they start pressing their points. Both of them start pressing their points, and the thing gets more and more heated. <laughs> Which goes to show you, you know, you, you really just don't make a lot of headway when you're butting heads like this. But, but they make some, some interesting points. And then Job makes his closing argument in chapter 27. Now, we're, if you've read this, you know that Job goes on to speak also in chapters 28 and 29. Uh, but, uh, and further, uh, actually, all the way through 31. But chapter 28 is a... Uh, clearly a different subject or a different approach. It's an interlude there in Job's argument, and it deserves its own study. We'll take that up next time. But chapter 27 really ends Job's closing argument with his three friends. Now, what I'd like for us to do is to go through the outline that I've, I've, I've written up for you um, and just notice some of the arguments that are being made. And uh, I even make my own attempt here to get inside the head of, of Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar and suggest what kind of theological outlook they might have that brings on their comments. And I'll, I'll share that with you. Now let's just go through it and look at some of the material. And then what I'd like to do is come back to page one. And we're going to talk about what are the main truths that both Job's friends and Job come up with that we can affirm. And what are the main problems 
uh, that we see there in both of their approaches, Job's friend and Job's uh, approach. So let's look then uh, on page two of your handout. And you'll see, let's look at this first cycle of speeches. Eliphaz is the first one to open his mouth. And you'll need your Bible open and your outline. You can make notes as you wish. Uh, I'll have a few little corrections in here because this was done in haste. But uh, you'll get the gist of it. Now, Eliphaz, in the very beginning, he's a Temanite. He says, uh, you know, he, he kind of begs for a hearing in verse 2 there of chapter 4. And then look at verse 6. He's making a, a special argument. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? In other words, Job, uh, aren't, wouldn't you be willing to rest your case on your own piety and on your own morality? Because actually you're better than most people are. Why don't you make your argument there? And he goes on in verses 7 through 11. It says just verse 7 there, but that's 7 through 11. He says, look, God rewards people. Uh, he says in verse 7, where were the upright ever destroyed? So, Job, why don't you make your piety your defense? And why don't you realize that God is fair. He rewards people uh, for their goodness. And then he goes on to a little bit different argument. Uh, and he says, in light of this, Job, of this reality that our piety is our defense and God rewards those who are righteous, when you get to verse 12, and it says, I've got there 12 through 16, that should be 12 through 21. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 21. Here's his argument. He says, okay, if God defends the righteous, let's go to our next point, there really are no righteous. So, Job, you have no defense. Uh, he, says, he says, God alone is holy. Compared to him, we are all unholy. Look at verse 17, for example. He says, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more are those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. He's saying, if the angels are not even holy compared to God, what hope do you have, Job? Why would you defend yourself? So he's saying, and, and I would call Eliphaz a formulaic moralist. A formulaic moralist. That is, there's a God in heaven. He alone is holy. He keeps the rules of the universe. He always rewards the righteous. He always punishes the wicked. And you're one of the wicked. Uh, because how are you going to defend yourself if, if God is so great that he even accuses angels of wrong? What hope do you have? So, so Eliphaz is just saying, hey, buck up, pal. I mean, why would you defend yourself? And he says, here's, when you get to chapter, and here I've got a couple of inserts. I left these out. So after 4, 12 through 21, God alone is holy. Compared to him, we are all unholy. Let me, let me enter two more things here. In chapter 5, 1 through 7, he makes the point that we basically deserve what we get. We deserve what we get. And then in 5, 8 through 16, he says, Job, here's your only hope. He says, pray and ask for help. 
So God alone is holy. We get uh, what we deserve. Or we deserve what we get. And then he says in verses 8 through 16 of chapter 5, pray and ask for help. Look at verse 8. Now, Job, if I were in your shoes, <laughs> okay, you say, Joe, here's what I would do. He says, but if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Job, what you need is a miracle. <laughs> you can't defend yourself. You just need God to work a miracle for you. Why don't you just pray and ask him for help? And come, come humbly before Him. Now, then when you get to this last piece, which I've labeled verse 17, that's actually chapter 5, verses 17 through 27. Say, Wilson, how did you get this so far off here? <clears throat> well, I'm sorry. It's called bad editing. 5, 7 through 27. Accept the discipline, which is a blessing. God is good in the end. So he says, look at verse 17. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Does that sound familiar? It sure does. Huh? It sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. Now, this is the interesting thing. As we're going to see, there are, there are a lot of truths that Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar share. In fact, they're quoted in the New Testament. So these guys are not completely wrong. We're going to see where, how they got off. They're real close. They're sharing a lot of things that are true. It's the way they put their whole argument together, they come up with the wrong conclusion. But they've got a lot of truths in there. And they're basically saying, Job, you can't defend yourself. Submit yourself to God's discipline, which you deserve, because you're a sinner. Even the angels are charged. Now just ask Him for help. Just humble yourself. Shut up. Stop complaining. Stop accusing God. Just shut up. Humble yourself and ask Him for His help. You don't deserve it, but ask Him for it. Now, that's, that's Eliphaz's advice. And I, I would say this is coming from a formulaic moralism. That is, God is the uh, governor of the universe. He's created moral laws. And he rules by those moral laws. And therefore, if something doesn't go right, you must have broken one of the laws. So just get back into law keeping, which is now pray. Pray more. Pray, pray, pray. And you'll be fine. He'll restore your fortunes. That's what Eliphaz would say. Now, let's look at Job's answer. <laughs> First thing is, he says, I'm miserable. <laughs> uh, and all he can do is just talk about his anguish. Uh, he says, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales. I mean, you know, you'd see the megatons of weight that are on my shoulder. Look at verse 6. Uh, is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? <laughs> that's, that's the way my life is. It's like the white of an egg. Tasteless. And then he says, verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose His hand and just cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain that I did not deny the word to the Holy One. So Job is just saying in verses 8 through 10, God, just kill me before I deny you. Just get me out of here before I do something really bad. That's the way he feels. And then you get to verses 11 through 30. And he's just saying, you all don't understand. 
Eliphaz, you don't have a clue. He says in verse, look at look how he compliments Eliphaz for his wonderful help in verse 14. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and the heat vanish from their channels. It's like the wadis, you know, in Jordan and and surrounding area in the wilderness, when the snows are melting on the mountains, they're just, you know, just rushing streams coming down those wadis. But in the summer when it's hot and dry, the wadis dry up, there's no water. He says, that's the way you are as a friend. I've got plenty of water when I don't need it. And here I am in the midst of my need. What do I get from you? <laughs> nothing. And so Job's saying, your, your, your help is, is nothing. It's worse than nothing. My friends don't understand. And then in chapter 7, verse 1 through 21, the, basically the whole chapter, he basically says, God doesn't understand either. And I don't understand God. Here's a man who feels completely misunderstood. Look at the beginning of chapter 7. Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. Saying that my life is like that of a slave. All he can look for is just the, the coming of the evening. When he can kind of check out and just put his head on the pillow if he's got one. And that's the way life is for me. He says in verse 13, When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams. He's talking to God. You terrify me with visions. So here I am, Lord. I've been slaving all day long. Night comes. And then what do you do? You give me a nightmare. Thanks. He says in verse 16, I despise my life. I would not live forever. And then look at this. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. God, some people want intimate fellowship with you. Here's what I want. Just leave me alone. I've really had enough of you. I see how you operate. This is the way Job is feeling. He just wants a little distance between him and God. He's not real impressed with how God is helping him out here. I just don't understand God. The closer you get, the worse my life gets. You ever felt that way? If you've suffered the loss like Job has suffered, I can almost guarantee you you felt that way from time to time. So let's, let's look further what happens next. After Job gives his response, you would think that his friends would say, oh, Job, sorry, obviously we didn't understand. You know, we've never had suffering like that, never had pain like that. Uh, and they back off. No, not Bildad. Bildad says in verse 2 of chapter 8, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And then look at verse 4. Let's go for the juggler. When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Woo! You lost your children because they were bad sinners. Thank you, Mr. Bildad. He's showing in verses 1 through 4, this is chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, that God is not unjust. I didn't put the verses there. You can mark them in there if you want to. And he 
pleads with Job to realize that this only happened because his children were bad sinners. And then in verses 5 through 7, he says, look, ask him for help and he will reward your righteousness. He says in verse 5, but if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Okay, if Eliphaz was the formulaic moralist, here you have the health, wealth, prosperity preacher. The reason bad things happen is because you're bad. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't obey the Lord like you should have. Your children, your family were messed up. Now look, here's what you need to do. Turn to the Lord, live a pure life, live a righteous life, and He'll just pour out prosperity on you. So here's Bildad, the prosperity gospel preacher. And he says, if you doubt what I'm saying to you, this is uh, verses 8 through 22, consult our forebearers' traditions. That's all the way through the end of the chapter, 8 through 22. If you doubt me, just read the sermons of the wise men of the East that we all know about. And Bildad is claiming tradition. And he would be right. And when we first started studying Job, we looked at some of the uh, wisdom traditions that were available to people in that day. And that's all Bildad is doing. He's citing the traditional wisdom of his day, the majority opinion. And there, this is majority opinion. The formulaic moralism and even the prosperity sort of gospel that God is just and He'll reward those who are righteous and all you need to do is get better and He'll reward you. That's the speech Bildad gives to console the suffering servant Job. Well, let's see what Job says. Basically, Job goes into what I would call deep cynicism. Job becomes very cynical. And he says, what's the use? He says, indeed, I know that this is true. He says, I know what you're saying is true, that God is holier than all of us, that He rewards their righteous. So what is the use? How can a mortal be righteous before God? This is chapter 9, verse 2. Though one wished to, to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. In other words, he's saying God is inscrutable. You couldn't understand him. God has his own ways. There's no way of understanding God. Why even bother with this? It's completely illogical. So Job's taking a measure of the truth that is being given to him by this prosperity gospel preacher, and he's using it just to excuse himself from reality. And to say, nothing makes sense, so I'm just checking out of this thing. He's just in total despair. God is inscrutable. And then he says in verses 14 through 35, God is inaccessible. Look at verse 14. How then can I dispute him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. So he's saying, I can't even get to him. I can't figure him out, and I can't get to him. And then when you come to chapter... Well, let's, let's, look, uh, let's look at some examples in chapter 9. Look at verse 29. 
Look at this cynicism. This is 9.29. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I wash myself with soap in my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Ooh. Looking God in the face and saying, even if I were absolutely clean, you'd still demolish me. That's the way he feels about God. And look at chapter 10. God is completely perplexing. Do you have eyes, at verse 4, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? God, do you, do you think anything like us? No, you're completely perplexing. Look at verse 18, next page. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my days almost over? Turn away from me so can I, I can have a moment's joy. Lord, just give me peace and quiet. Just, just leave me alone. So the advice of the moralist and the advice of the prosperity message just sends Job into deeper despair in wanting not even to be around God. He says, I know this is the way God is, and if He is, this is hopeless. I want out of here. Okay, so Eliphaz and Bildad <clears throat> don't do Job a whole lot of good, so here comes our friend Zophar. <laughs> okay. Look at what Zophar is doing. He's saying, look, First of all, you've got to understand God's ways are higher. Uh, he, his ways are higher than our ways. And then he gets to verse 13. Uh, he, he says, you just have to recommit yourself to him. Look at verse 13. To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. When he tears down, cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. So you have to recommit yourself. And then... Verse 15 through 20, not 22. I just, I'm sorry, I'm in the uh, wrong chapter. I beg your pardon. Let's back up just a minute. Verse 13 through 14. Let me read that again. This is chapter 11 on page 765. Yet if you devote your heart to Him and stretch out your hands to Him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame you will stand firm and without fear. So he's saying, look, Job, God's ways are higher than ours, but if you'll turn to Him, then verse 15 through 20, rather than 22, all will be well. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor, and so on. Now, this is what I would call let go and let God. He's being, Job's, Job's being taught, look, Job just... Let go of trying to control the situation. God's ways are higher than our ways. You just recommit yourself to Him and hand it all over to Him. Just hand it over to Him and all will be well. And there's some truth to these. There's truth in all three of these men in their speeches, correct? We'll get to this in a moment. It's a little perplexing. You're thinking, I think these things are exactly what my mother told me. <laughs> you know, why, why, why are these guys being criticized? Well, we'll see. But Zophar is sort of the let go and let God advocate. And let's see how Job responds in chapter 12, 13, and 14. He says in verse 3, look, I'm as smart as you are. He says, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Doubtless you guys are the last of the great sages in the world. 
And who am I to oppose you? And wisdom will die with you. But verse 3, but I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you who does not know all these things. So first of all, Job is just kind of getting his footing. He's saying, look, I have a right as much as you guys to think this one through. And then he goes in verse 4 through 25 in this major and important discourse to say, I see clearly what I see. And I know what I know. And I am seeing these injustices. And you guys are not admitting them. I'm seeing them and I'm calling them what they are. I know what I know. And you guys are not explaining reality as I see it with my own eyes. So uh, if you're struggling for wisdom, you got to take in the facts. You got to face the brutal facts. And Job is facing them. He's saying, You guys aren't facing them. And I am. And then you get to chapter 13. It says verses 1 through 12 there. Are you any better? That's chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. And he says, are you any better than I am? Look at verse 2. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Now this is a really important verse. Verse 13. We see this coming out of Job. He's heard these three speeches. He's heard the moralistic speech. He's heard the health, wealth, and prosperity speech. He's heard the, the pietistic let go and let God speech. And he's saying, I just want my day in court. God, where are you? Where's the courtroom? I want to present my case. And so Job now has a longing in his heart for justice and vindication, for understanding, for a judgment that makes sense of the realities around him. He wants to present his case. And you know what? God has established the courts of law because there is a longing in our hearts to present our case. And we know when we're, when we're being dealt with unjustly, if we just get our day in court with someone who will hear our case with an honest jury, we'll, we'll get a judgment that's fair. Somewhere, somewhere there's a, there's a court I can go to and get, get a judgment here and get justice. Now, all of our hearts are longing for it. And you can see it in, in all the issues of social injustice, not only in this country, but around the world. People longing for justice. And Job is hoping now for justice against God himself. And he's longing for it in verse 3. And he says, verse 4, You, however, smear me with lies. And look what he calls them. Worthless doctors. Worthless physicians. All of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Just shut up. And you'd be a whole lot wiser than you are right now. You ever had a friend like that? Ever been a friend like that? Yeah, I have. I've, I've walked away from trying to help somebody several times in my life and you said, Wilson, if you just kept your mouth shut, if you just said nothing, you would have been a wise man. And that's what Job sees. These guys are not helpful and so many of the sermons that come out of our mouths are not helpful at all because... We do not have perspective of the Scriptures or of God. So uh, Job in chapter 13 is saying, are you any better? And then he says in verse 13, really, what have I done? What have I done? And chapter 13 verse 15 is a very famous verse. He says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Now, I use this verse, and I'm sure like you do, 
to say, to speak about hope. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, as the KJV says, or here, yet I will hope in him. So even if God kills me, I'll still hope in him. And that's legitimate, but I'd like to suggest the context here suggests a little bit different angle on the meaning of that verse. He's saying, even if God continues this misbehavior, I'm still going to press my case. (laughs) That's really what he's saying. I I will hope in him in spite of him. (laughs) And and Job gives this litany of the way the Lord's mistreating him. He says, even if he slays me, I'm going to continue to press my case to the divine court. (laughs) So he's, he's in two minds. He's blaming God and he's also seeking God. And that's exactly the way you feel when you're suffering. You're blaming God and you're seeking God. You, you want to get away from His treatment, but you want to get close to His justice. And you can't get Him because He's inaccessible to you in your own mind. So though He slay me, I'm still going to defend myself in court. So you see this longing for justice, longing for a court, longing for somebody to speak up on His behalf. And He's saying, what have I done? Come on, tell me. You be. You tell me. What did I do to bring this on? And then once again in chapter thirteen twenty seven, through the end of fourteen, he basically just says once again, please just leave me alone. Look at verse five of chapter four, fourteen. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months, and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him. Let him alone till he has put his time in like a hired man. Just let's get this over with. You've determined the number of days I'm going to live. Let's just get it over. And don't use me anymore because of the abuse I'm taking from you. Wow. Deep pain brings out these honestly bitter words. Now let's go to the second cycle of speeches. That does not shut his friends up. He says to them, I wish you'd shut up, and they don't. Amazing. Eliphaz is back at it in chapter 15. And here's his complaint in verses 1 through 16. He says, Job, you undermine piety itself. You undermine godliness. Everything you're saying is unraveling the way we're supposed to live. Just listen to yourself, Job. You're sitting there accusing God? What kind of piety is that? These guys can't handle it. Eliphaz can't handle it. And look, for example, in verse 7 through 13, he says, Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Did you you pre-exist? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Does He consult with you, Job? Do you have secrets that we don't have? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Are you the only one who knows what's going on here, Job? See, they're starting to really press their case now. They're arguing with Him. What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side. Men even older than your father. Job, you are disagreeing with three friends who are pretty much in agreement with each other and you're disagreeing with the wisdom of everything that's been brought to us in our tradition. He's really pouring it on now. And then when you get to verses 17 through 35 on the next page of your Bible, he says, punishment comes finally to the wicked because God is just. And he's pressing his case again about this moral universe, this formal, formulaic moralism. 
Job gives an answer in verse in chapter 16. He says, hey, Eliphaz, anything new there? I've heard these arguments before. You're repeating yourself, Eliphaz. You make the same old arguments. And then in verses 7 through 17 of chapter 16, he says, look, God has assailed me without cause. Look at verse 13. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. God is at war with me, friends. Get it. And then when you get to chapter 16, there at the bottom of that page on your outline, verses 18 through 21, he basically says, I need a lawyer. Somebody get me a lawyer. And for example, look at verse 18. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. That is, earth, don't forget what I'm saying. Let this stay in the history books. I'm still complaining. Don't let me just be swallowed up. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. He's saying, I need a lawyer. And those who are sitting up in the heavenlies, the angels, or somebody up there knows the truth. And I need them to take up my case for me. I wonder if he'll ever get an answer to that prayer. What do you think? Yeah, I think he might. But that's the cry of the human heart. Only God can vindicate me. Men don't know enough to vindicate me. Only God can. Now let me add something that was left out here at the bottom of your outline on page 2. Add uh, underneath, I need a lawyer. Chapter 16.22 through 17.16. 16.22 all the way through the end of chapter 17. 17.16. And I would just say this. This is going to be a slow death with no hope. That's what Job is saying. It's going to be a slow death with no hope. Once again, that cynicism just comes out. It's not only, not only do I wish God would leave me alone, not only would I wish He'd just let me die, but here's, the, here's even worse news. I'm not going to get to. It's going to be a slow, miserable death. Okay, anybody feeling worse than Job today? If you do... Everybody else, just give him a big hug. Let's look at the second speech by Bildad as we turn to chapter 18. And Bildad, just his, his message in 18 is real simple. Only evil men face earthly disasters. Job, if your life is a disaster, there's only one answer. You screwed up. Evil men, get this, not righteous men. And... You can see how Bildad gets frustrated now in verse 2. He says, when will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Job, shut up and listen and be reasonable. <laughs> so they're both saying the same thing to each other. Look at Job's response in chapter 19. Of course, this chapter is seminal, I would say, to the entire New Old Testament. This chapter points to the New Testament 
as gloriously as any chapter in the Old Testament. He says in verse 1 through 6, you don't get it. How long, verse 2, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? You see the power of words? They don't, they don't just float by with no consequence. When you and I give words that are not godly words, that are not Christ-centered, gospel-centered words, they crush. They don't help. You can take a series of truths and line them up and state them in order and crush somebody with them. On the other hand, you can take some truths and line them up and offer someone salve and real healing. It's not... It's not whether the individual truths are correct. It's whether you have a true overall perspective in the deliverance of those individual truths. That's the problem. And he says, you've crushed me. And then in verses 7 through 22, he, he says clearly, look, God is denying me justice. Verse 7, though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Nobody's home. Nobody's in the court. And then here it is in verses 23 to 29 when you get to the heart of the matter. And Job just says, look, I, there are some things I know. He says, let's just read 23 through 29. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Wow. Verses 25 through 27, gentlemen, is worthy of memorizing, although we're a little confused on exactly what the Hebrew means in a few cases there. But the gist of it you get clearly. He's longing for an advocate. He's longing for what we know as a kinsman redeemer. You remember Ruth was redeemed by Boaz, her kinsman redeemer? That's what the word redeemer means here. It's kinsman redeemer. I know that my kinsman redeemer, my, my goel in the Hebrew, lives. And I'll see him with my own eyes, even when my flesh is destroyed. And here is a clear statement about eternal life and about having eyes that will see God. And the longing that you have now in your suffering the longing for the courts of the Lord where you'll get justice, even though you don't understand Him, even though in your sorrow you, you accuse Him of all kinds of wrong things, one day you know down deep inside, here's what you know, I'm going to see Him and I will be vindicated and I'll see Him with my own eyes. I'll stand before Him. This is one of the most glorious statements about the resurrection I think you'll ever find. So in the midst of Job's sorrows, he does know one thing. He's going to see his Redeemer at the end and his longings will be satisfied. Now, let's look at the third speech of, uh, uh, that comes from Zophar. Zophar's second speech. After those marvelous words, uh, Zophar still is at it. And he says in, simply in his chapter, here chapter 20, God surely punishes the wicked in spite of appearances, even if it is in the succeeding generations. So he's, he's saying, look, Job, okay, so maybe your children didn't sin. Maybe you did. Maybe your parents did. Maybe your grandparents did. And your children paid for it. A lot of help that is. And Job says in chapter 21, nonsense. And Job just says, 
we're, we must be looking at two different worlds because what I see is that the wicked prosper. And don't give me your moralistic explanation of the universe because I'm looking out there and I see the wicked prospering. Let's go to the third cycle of speeches quickly. Eliphaz is at it again in chapter 22. And he says, Job, let's just get real specific. Verse 4, is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? So now we're going from, hey, Job, I think maybe you sinned to say now, Job, you're one of the worst sinners of all. Your sins are endless. In his frustration, Eliphaz just presses and presses and presses. And he says in verse, verses 12 to 20, God sees it and judges. And then in verses 21, uh, through the end of the chapter, he just says, submit to God and be at peace with Him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Here we have it again. So Job responds in chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. If I could get my day in God's court, I, He would acquit me. He says, uh, look at verse 3 in chapter 23. If only I knew where to find Him. If only I could go to His dwelling. I would state my case before Him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what He would answer me and consider what He would say. Would He oppose me with great power? No. He would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before Him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So on one hand, He's charging God with injustice. On the other hand, He says, if I could ever get to Him, I know He would acquit me. But... Verses 13 through 17. But what hope is there? Who could ever approach him or oppose him? He's unapproachable. And you can't make your argument to him. Then you come to chapter 24. Job continues to speak. And he says, look, there's a whole bunch of evil that goes unpunished all the time. Don't give me this moral universe stuff. I see evil all the time and there's no punishment at all. Makes no sense. Verse 18 through 25. Hey, look, I agree with you. God will one day punish the wicked. I agree with that. You're not giving me truths I disagree with. It's your overall truth I disagree with. It's the inference you're making from the fact that God will judge the wicked to say that He always judges the wicked in space and time, and that's what's happening to me. Job's very frustrated. And then you get Bildad to speak up, and he says, Job, Job, Job. <laughs> Don't you love the patronizing way in which these guys are speaking to their friend Job? He just says, verse 4, this is chapter 25, How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Job, 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 Job. And Job says in chapter 26, Exactly, Sherlock. So who can be righteous before God? Exactly, that's my point. So why are you picking me out? I'm the one who suffered all this. Why should he pick me out above anybody else? That's just my point, Mr. Bildad. And uh, you can see the, in verse 2 how he says it. How have you helped the powerless? Boy, you've been a big help today, Mr. Bildad. How you have saved the arm that is feeble. Thank you for your incredible help to me today. What advice you have offered to one without wisdom. And what great insight you have displayed. Tell me. Who has helped you utter such special words? And whose spirit spoke from your mouth? It must have been heavenly wisdom you brought me. So helpful. So Job is cynical about just about everything. And now he makes his closing argument, chapter 27. 
He's basically saying, look, guys, you hadn't helped me a bit. I'm sticking to what I know. He says, verse 2, As surely as God lives who has denied me justice, there's the charge against God, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. You guys are not budging me at all. And then he goes on to say, look, God will indeed punish the wicked, but that doesn't help explain what I'm going through. That's his final sort of complaint. Now, let's back up. We've got 10 minutes to come to conclusions on all this. First thing we want to do is be sure, just like you do anything else when you're critiquing, listen to people and find out what they're doing or saying that is true and helpful, and then look at what needs to be corrected. Let's look at the main truths. First of all, in Job's friends, they believe in one God. And they believe that God is sovereign, holy, just, and good. They are technically not saying individual things about God that you could say that's completely false. They're saying God is in charge of the universe, that all of our sufferings come under His hand. This is no accident. It's not out of His control. They're saying God alone is holy. They're correct, aren't they? They're saying that God is just, and they're saying if you turn to Him, He's good. So their theology proper seems to be intact. Let's give them give credit where credit is due. And they're not talking about a bunch of pagan gods like some of the people that lived around them. They have an idea. They're monotheists. Amazing. Secondly, they're saying that we must humble ourselves and turn to God and ask for His help. So he's not, they're not deists who say that God created the world like a watchmaker creates a watch, leaves it ticking and leaves it alone. No, they're saying God's related to his universe. So God creates and then God intervenes. And they're saying you can talk to him and he'll give you help. This is remarkable. Very wonderful theology for these three friends. I can understand why Job had him as these friends. So Job's friends believe some powerful truths. Let's look at what Job believes that we can affirm. He's saying that God's ways are inscrutable. And he's correct. There is an inscrutability to God. But here's where our postmodern age makes a huge mistake. Just because all of, ways God, all of God's ways are inscrutable doesn't mean you can't know anything about God. Just because you can't know everything about God doesn't mean you can't know anything about God. And so what is being said today in the higher places of learning is that God is completely inscrutable. And your view of God is just, has just as much moral value as anybody else's view of God, and there's no way to measure because it's completely inscrutable. That's a waste of time. If you can't know anything, why even talk? You can know something about God. You just can't know everything. And Job is right. Job also has shown us that our sufferings cannot be ascribed to our sins. Now, in general, they can. We live in a fallen world because Adam and Eve sinned and because we His children have sinned. We live in a broken world. And so anything that happens, you can say we deserve it. But you, what you can't do is say, this happened to this individual person because of this sin that he committed. And Job breaks that link and we're thankful for it. Even though t people today in pulpits are trying to resurrect the wisdom of Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz. Thirdly, Job teaches us that God is going to work this out in the end. He says, I know the wicked are going to be judged, and I know that 
I'm going to receive justice in heaven. It's going to work out in the end. He says, your problem is you're not working out your theology in time and you're, you're drawing wrong inferences from it. But he says, I have no problem with eschatology. And fourthly, Job believes that God is sovereign, holy, just, and good. So Job obviously believes in God, the, the real God who is. And a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, as Hebrews says it. Now let's look at the problems. First of all, Job's friends vastly overestimate their grasp of truth. They're acting as though they comprehend God. Gentlemen, you don't comprehend God. You apprehend God. You cannot put your mind around God. You can't put your mind around truth. You search truth. And that's the glory of being one of His children is that we're searching God and searching truth. But we never comprehend Him. He's too big for that. He's vast and measurable, immense and free. We're finite, measurable. So Job's friends were acting as though they knew everything. I'll take Job any day. I'll take a cynic any day over an arrogant, prideful scholar who thinks he knows everything. Job gets cynical, uh, but at least Job knows that he doesn't know everything. And he's frustrated by it and he expresses it. Job's friends, secondly, stubbornly hold to a faulty theodicy. And we've seen what a theodicy is. That's the justification of God. And we've seen that the only way you can come to a justification of God is when you move it beyond time into eternity. That one of the problems is that if you try to work out your theodicy, God's justice, only in the scope of space and time, you're not going to be able to do it. That's what Job's friends were trying to do. They were trying to work out God's justice in the scope of space and time. And so they were, and they were sticking to it. They were stubbornly holding to an earthbound theodicy. Thirdly, Job's friends ignore the facts that contradict their presuppositions. They were saying that God always punishes the wicked. Job says, no way. And everybody knows that's not the truth. You're living in la-la land. You create a theology that for you feels very comfortable. You think you're protected now because you have a nice theology. God rewards the righteous and He punishes the wicked and all I have to do is be righteous. Two bad things happen from that. You're going to get surprised and not be able to take in the facts as they are and secondly, you're going to be self-righteous because you're always going to think of yourself as the righteous. And you want to be rewarded, so you'll always think of yourself as righteous, and you're not. So all kinds of problems come from that. And Job's friends were ignoring the facts that the evil often prosper in life. Fourthly, they badly misapplied what they knew. So, it's true that God is holy and that He alone is holy. But it's not true that, that we can't be vindicated. It's true that His ways are higher than our ways, but it's not true that, he, that we're, His courts are inaccessible to us. It's true that He is just, but it is not true that you can always see it in space and time from cause and effect in one person's life. So their inferences from their organizing principles were way off, and so therefore their whole framework about God's heart and the way God works was wrong and very unhelpful. Now let's look at Job's problems. First of all, Job defends his righteousness. I'll defend my integrity to the death. Well, I suppose 
you could in one sense, if you know you didn't tell a lie, to say I didn't tell a lie. But we all know from the very nature of a human being that it's really not worth defending yourself. Because if your behavior was correct, does that mean all your thoughts were righteous? Does that mean all your words are righteous? And so Job defends himself. And we see, of course, when God shows up later on in this book, Job just shuts up. No more defense. That's it. It's over. And so in, in the presence of God, you see all this stuff evaporate. No more defenses. And secondly, Job charges God with injustice. It's one thing to notice that the rubrics of justice are not being followed in every individual case in space and time. It's another thing to say that God is unjust because of it. What is your theodicy? Do you believe there's a God who's coming who will bring justice on, in all things one day? Then don't call Him unjust. He will bring justice in His time and in His way. And Job was accusing God because God wasn't performing right now in my life the way I want Him to. Now lastly, we want to end with this. We've got two minutes. And this, of course, is the most lovely thing of all. What does Job show us about Christ? We could say that Job shows us Christ because Job suffers so deeply. Now we understand the sufferings of Christ even more so. And that would be true. But wouldn't you say that what we're really getting out of Job is that Christ is really the only answer for the longing of suffering human beings? Isn't it true that when you suffer and you know there's not a direct cause and effect to this, it just seems to come out of nowhere? You want to know what is this all about? How will I be vindicated? How will I be justified? Who's going to advocate for me? I can't get my hands on God. He's invisible. He's a spirit. I'm a human body. I can't get in heaven. can't jump high enough to get up there and make my case. I need a lawyer. And doesn't the New Testament say that God has given us a lawyer, an advocate, at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us and continually makes our case for us? Gentlemen, the glory of the biblical good news is we don't have to argue our case. Our case is being argued for us. And Jesus Christ not only argues the case, but He doesn't argue it on the basis of our performance, which would be a losing case. He makes the argument on the basis of His own shed blood and the basis of His own righteousness. So when He's before the Father pleading on your behalf, He's not adducing as evidence your performance. He's adducing as evidence His performance. And He says, Father, this is what I did on their behalf. Father, this is the price I paid for their sins and I'm pleading the merits of my own blood before your throne. And guess who wins the case? The Father's Son wins the case. And we are completely vindicated, way beyond anything that Job was thinking. Job didn't need just a lawyer. He needed someone to sacrifice their life for his sins. He needed someone whose righteousness could truly be argued before the divine courts. And the longing of the human heart who doesn't even know the fullness of our answer. We know one day we'll see our Redeemer, but we don't know how that's all going to work out. What we find out in the coming of Jesus Christ, He did work out the longings of Job. And He does redeem all of our sufferings. And they do redound to His praise and honor and glory and to our glory as well because we have an advocate with the Father. The longings of Job can only be answered by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He has done. And Job now knows that. And Job is in heaven. And he is full of joy and gratitude 
And that is the purpose of our sufferings. So that when we see our Redeemer, we actually know why we're praising Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all Your goodness to us even when we don't understand it. Even when it's painful. Even when it hurts. Because You are preparing us for heavenly courts. Not courts of law, but courts of praise. And Lord, we would long to be there with Job and with all of those in history who have put their trust in You through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.